to the mini break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Sunday, October 2nd. Always a pleasure to get to begin these episodes with these magical words. It was another jam packed weekend of championship action in the pro tennis world. As a reminder, we had five different tour level events unfold over the past few days. Three tournaments on the men's side with the action in Seoul, Sofia, and Tel Aviv. Two events for the women, the indoor hardcourt event in Tallinn, Estonia, the outdoor red clay event in Parma, Italy. Always nice when we can mix in some clay court action here in late September, of course, the big picture, so many different storylines emerged over the course of the past few days. And of course, here on today's show, my plan is to walk you listeners through each of them. Now, how do I go about deciding what to lead this show with? Perhaps some of you listeners may wonder that from time to time. It's always difficult here on the Sunday, Monday episodes of the mini break when you do have so many different events to unfold. And every weekend is a championship weekend in the pro tennis world. Therefore, every event feels somewhat significant. That said, the way I like to look at things is by judging each storyline based on its significance, not only to the rest of this 2022 season, but of course, the significance of a result moving forward as well. For instance, in Tallinn, Estonia, the fact that Barbara Krachikova wins her first singles title in quite a bit of time and looked the way she did throughout the course, not only of her championship victory over Annette Conteve, but just in her victories throughout the course of the week, the steadiness with which Krachikova played, the relentless measured aggression she displayed through each and every one of her matches. We know what the upside of Barbara Krachikova is. Not only has she won just about everything a player can win in the WTA doubles world, but she's a Grand Slam champion in singles as well, of course, the 2021 French Open champion uh, was one of the breakout stars, certainly, of the 2021 season and dealt with injuries early here in 2022. But to see her return to form, to see her reach the level that she did in Tallinn over the course of the past week, that feels particularly significant. So, of course, I want to discuss that here on today's show. Of course, again, four other tour-level events. It wasn't just Krachikova who was outstanding in Tallinn. And by the way, Kanteve wasn't too shabby in reaching the final either, but on the men's side, the single best thing I watched was Yoshihito Nishioka's victory over Denis Shapovalov. Yes, it was a straight set match. Even if you only watch the eight-minute tennis TV highlight package on YouTube, you will understand how exceptional that match was, how enjoyable the contrast of styles was, how high a level each guy was able to play. And I do think big picture for Denis Shapovalov, he's played such better tennis over the course of the past six weeks, enticing us once again to make him one of those make-or-break players of 2023. And by the way, I'm telling you right now, in December, I will be doing a podcast specifically on Denis Shapovalov because it does feel like he's at the age now where we should be able to know What's the next five years going to look like? It hasn't just been a two-year run for Shapovalov. He was a guy who was playing ATP matches at 18, 19 years old. He's had three, four, five years to become acclimated to the level of play. And while the highs have been extraordinarily high, the lows have been extraordinarily low. Point is, and you hear me going on a tangent right now, we're going to do a full Shapovalov pod at some point in the offseason in December. Why? To me... 
He's one of the players we have to watch heading into 2023, but he was not the best player in his final in Seoul, South Korea. No, the better player was Yoshihito Nishioka, who has been in the top 75, top 60 mix before, but I think I can make a pretty convincing case that 2022 has been the best season of the now 27-year-old's career, and to see Nishioka win a second uh, ATP title, to see him do it in his home continent of Asia, and to see the crowds in South Korea just day after day deliver the goods. Oh my God, was the action fun in Seoul. Of course, you also had the Kovacevic run to the semifinals, which I feel like I haven't touched on enough here on this show over the course of the past week. So again, we got a lot of catching up to do. Not going to surprise me at all if this episode ends up going over an hour. Again, that said, want to talk about Krachikova, want to talk about Nishioka. You know I have a soft spot for big lefties. Neither of my brother. well, I suppose my younger brother is particularly big. He's taller than me. He's like six three and a half, six four. Now he's a little pipsqueak in my mind, so I don't see him as big, but both of my brothers are lefties, have always had an affinity for lefty games on this show. Just the matchup advantages or the ways they can make the majority of players uncomfortable because the majority of players are right-handed, not left-handed. We've always had a soft spot for those lefties. Marc-Andre Hussler has landed right in that soft spot as he reaches and wins his first ATP level title of his career. Hustler so impressive all week long, whether it was over my check in the quarterfinals, a match I was privileged enough to be able to call for our friends over at Tennis Channel, whether it was Musetti in the semis, Runa in the finals. Hustler just plays on his terms, and I want to talk about those terms, talk about why I am so excited about him moving forward. Hustler is not that old, and it just feels like there's still more game for him to tap into, and with his size, his athleticism, a lot to be excited about. I think if you are a tennis fan, fan of Hustler's, but that whole Sofia event to have Runa, Musetti, Sinner, who unfortunately gets injured again, rolling his ankle, so many different injuries for Sinner throughout the course of this season, so many different nagging injuries it feels like as well. Lots to talk about from Sophia. You know, of course, we've gone this long. I haven't said the name Novak Djokovic, and I know many a tennis podcast. Hopefully that's why you Cracked Rackets fans listen to us, because we don't just lay off and say, Djokovic, very good. There's your story. That's all there is right now going on in the tennis world. And I'm not going to name names, but I know some podcasts do just do that. Um, and that's not a shot of Kill Gross, because his show is specifically called Three, a tennis show. You know what you're getting into when he says in the title, hey, we're talking about Djokovic, Nadal, Federer. I'm talking about other shows that try to present. Anyways, I'm not getting into that. Point is, a lot of shows, did you hear me just catch myself? I'm pretty proud of myself right there for catching myself. That right there is maturity. Five years ago, 2017, when this show started, I would have ripped on people. I would have called out names. Now I'm mature, though. More importantly, now I have friends that I'd like to keep. So the point is, you look, uh, Novak Djokovic, he wins a title. It uh, looked exceptional in Tel Aviv from start to finish. A stark reminder that even with the rise of Alcaraz and all these different young players playing extraordinarily well, hard to argue the road still doesn't go through uh, Djokovic and if healthy, Rafa Nadal in 2023, particularly when Djokovic shows off that sort of level. We got to talk about that. Got to talk about former uh, Fresno State Pepperdine standout, Maya Sharif, uh, dishing out another finals loss to Maria Sakkari, who you could just tell visually, viscery, was beaten up 
after losing that final to Sharif, did not play well really all week long and yet found herself in the final, which you think, okay, glass half full. You haven't played well. You're in the final. But to see those struggles carry into another final, definitely disappointing. But of course, we're glass half full here at Cracked Racket. So we got some Sharif to talk about. Was that eight-minute outline good enough for all of you listeners? As you can tell, plenty of things for us to touch upon here on today's show. Of course, the reason we're able to do that day in, day out is because of the support we get from all of you listeners and, of course, because of the support we get from our friends at Tennis Point. You all know the deal. Go to tennis-point.com today to find the latest and greatest equipment at the best prices as well. You use our promo code CR15. Not only will let them know we send you there, you'll get 15% off all sale items, free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls, tennis-point, simple, not the spelling, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. And again, a massive shout out to our friends at Tennis Point for providing us the support we need to provide a daily podcast to tennis fans everywhere, as we know that is a necessity if you want to stay caught up on everything happening in the tennis world. With that said, let's get into it. Another exciting championship weekend in the tennis world. The tennis looked good just about everywhere, so it makes picking what event to lead this podcast with difficult. But again, I think the place we have to start is Tallinn, Estonia. Barbara Krachikova back in the winner's circle. Krachikova making her first final since January of this season. She wins her first title since July of last year. As well, Krachikova drops just one set on her win to the winner's circle in Tallinn. But listen to this murderer's row of opponents Krachikova had to beat to get to the winner's circle. First round victory over Isla Tomjanovic. We saw Tomjanovic reach the second week of the 2022 U.S. Open. We saw her reach the second week of the 2022 Wimbledon as well. While Tomjanovic is not necessarily a player we would circle as a potential breakthrough Grand Slam champion, I think we all would agree that Tomjanovic is playing the best tennis of her career and for Krachikova to get a one in six victory over her in round one to face just two break points against a returner in Tom Janovic, who is a top 25 returner amongst top 50 players on the WTA tour speaks to how well Krachikova played from the start of this event but again it only got more impressive from there straight set victory over Marta Kostyuk in the round of 16, a straight set victory three and four over a player who's top three in total wins in this 2022 season, Beatrice Haddad Maya. Again, Krachikova three and four victory, faced just two break points throughout the course of that match. By the way, you know, you look for Krachikova was broken once in each of her first four wins this week, faced just two break points, went one of two against Tom Janovic, saved six of seven break points against Marta Kostyuk, one of two against Beatrice Haddad Maya, saved one of two against Belinda Bencic in a very impressive 6-7-7-6-6-2 win that took over three hours of play. Of course, those victories alone for Krachikova to get to her first final since January to put herself in a position to be back in the winner's circle given the struggles we've seen from Krachikova, who even with this run is 21-14 and 14 now overall on the season. 60% win percentage. That's far below what she hit last year, winning 71% of her matches, 44-18 and 18 overall. You know, again, just to get to the final, to win that three-hour, 22-minute match against uh, a Belinda Bencic who 
I will discuss in a second why I think she's playing the best tennis of her career, as I have alluded to, at multiple points on this show throughout the course of the season. You know, that would have been enough for Barbara Krachikova. In fact, you look for her overall on the year. Krachikova has six top 50 wins, four, uh, excuse me, seven top 50 wins, four of them came over the course of the past week with victories over Tomjanovic, Haddad, Maya, Bencic, and then again in the final, a dominant 6-2-6-3 victory over top-seeded Annette Conteve. And you look for Barbara Krachikova, again, it was how well she executed on serve from start to finish all week long. She just looked like the Krachikova who held 76.7% of the time last season. By the way, you know, that 76.7 number last year ranked third overall amongst top 50 players on the WTA Tour and we know that serve is the foundation of Krachikova's success. That serve has been the foundation of her success, not only on the singles court, but of course on the doubles court as well, where she and Katarina Sinyakova have partnered to win just about every title possible that exists in the professional tennis world. And I do apologize if you hear barking in the background. I'm so fortunate to be staying with my lovely friends, uh, the Rothman family. Some of you, of course, know former GSP co-host Max Rothman, whose parents live in LA while I'm here uh, doing some work for Tennis Channel. They have been kind enough to host me, perhaps most pressingly for everyone around me. They have more than graciously offered me a washing machine and dryer to use uh, so that I don't smell like I have been somewhere where I haven't had the ability to wash my clothes in over a week, but of course to have them host me to be able to get out of the city, spend some time with a family I love nearly and dearly. That of course just makes my life a lot better. I'll be that much more fresh, that much more engaged when I'm on the broadcast for T2. That said, you may hear some dogs in the background, and that's also half the fun of being out here at the Rothman household is getting to hang out with their lovely dogs as well. That said, Tangent aside, to get back to Barbara Krachikova, she has that ability to execute on her terms at an elite level. And it's not Serena Williams' Power Tennis Country Club, but it's ruthless efficiency in the depth of her drop shots, the depth of her ground strokes, the precision of the spot she hits when she attacks behind those ground strokes. And it doesn't matter forehand, backhand, wing, her ability to guide those approach shots to within a foot or, you know, three feet of the baseline of the sideline. She hits her spots so effectively. Her on-the-run squash shot forehand, which is also the on-the-run slice forehand that she plays defensively, it just stayed so low throughout the course of this weekend. In particular, I thought it gave both Annette Conteve and Belinda Bencic just a ton of fits, just kept the ball outside of their strike zones and didn't allow them to tee up with their feet set from an ideal position in the court. I also, again, Krachikova Valley so extraordinarily well. You see why she is as good at doubles as she is. And, you know, she's a better mover than, you know, while she's not the most explosive athlete, she anticipates extraordinarily well. And if she gets her hands on the ball, she's just able to generate depth and precision again with each and every one of her ground strokes. Krachikova was locked in. I mean, the fact that she plays five matches, she was, what, broken four total times? That's a job well done. And against Annette Conteve, despite the fact that she had played a three-hour, 22-minute match the day prior, it was her aggression that allowed her to power through. The fact that she was on her front foot, able to end rallies early when she was forced to. 
get into those 10, 15 shot balls. She was the one who was extending Conteve. Conteve was surviving and using her legs to extend rallies. But again, it was Krachikova who was inside the baseline moving forward to the net, which she just does so extraordinarily well. She went over 70% uh, percent of her first serve points in all five of her matches played, was over 50% of her second serve points in all five of her matches played as well. Again, this was the Barbara Krachikova we came to know over the course of the past year. And watching Krachikova play over the course of the past six weeks, I had the chance to see her in Cleveland when she lost a 6-4, 6-1 match to a very much informed Bernarda Pera. I test suggested to me that Krachikova was finding her form back. Now, her fitness kind of dipped off in that second set against Bernardo Pera, but, you know, as you can see this week, that fitness was not an issue for her. And, you know, I, while she had a tough loss to Alexandra Krunic in three sets in the U.S. Open second round, this was just the perfect bounce back. Again, four of her top 20 wins, uh, four of her seven top 20 wins on the season coming in one week of play. She was just driving the ball exceptionally well. She was so efficient. She got off. You know, it was, she had early breakpoint chances to take a 3-1 lead on Conteve. Conteve was able to fight them off for 2 all. And yet, you know, it didn't matter because not only does Krachikova hold 4-3-2, she kind of runs away with things uh, from there and just had a perfect read on the Annette Conteve serve and was taking that return inside uh, the baseline just about every time. And I think that's the thing that's so scary about Barbara Krachikva is not only is she so clearly an elite server with her ability to hit her spots and follow it up with first strike aggression, but she just makes contact so cleanly on the return of serve. And even in a year where, again, she's 21 and 14 overall this season, you look for Krachikova by reaching the quarterfinals here this week, just her fourth quarterfinal overall on the season. And yet, you know, she holds serve over 73% of the time, the average of a top 50 player, 71.2%. She also breaks serve 36.5% of the time, the average uh, player breaking 35.8%. What does that say? Even a struggling Barbara Krachikova is one of seven players this season, excuse me, to rank top 25 in both hold and break percentage amongst top 50 players. The foundation for success is there and that she continues to get fitter and now has this boost of confidence as well. You look for Krachikova with her win. She uh, currently now sits at number 23 in the WTA live rankings. You look for her in the points race. She's 24th. You know, she missed what? February to, to June, really, with injury. She played the French Open. That was it during the clay court season, and yet she's still a top 25 player, and a lot of that is based on the success that she has had here in Tallinn, that she has had, again, uh, in this back half of the season. That's a scary notion for the rest of the WTA Tour, that Barbara Krachikova returns to form, but that's precisely what we saw over the past week in Tallinn. Of course, for Krachikova, Impressive straight set victory, uh, three set victory over Belinda Bencic in the semifinals. I want to get to Annette Conteve momentarily, but 25 year old Belinda Bencic is playing the best tennis of her career. You look for Bencic now overall on the season. She's 36 and 17 for the year, you know, with. Still significant events on the calendar, right? We've got the 1,000-level event in Guadalajara. You've got Ostrava, Linz coming up as well. Will Bencic match her 2019 march of uh, mark of 49 victories in a single season? That might be a little bit tougher. She's still got 13 to go, and 
you know, she'd have to make a significant run probably at one of those three, four final events should she qualify for the year in finals. That's obviously a whole nother monster right there as well. But you look for Belinda Bencic this season. She's holding 76.8% of the time. That's a career high for the 25-year-old. It's a number that ranks fourth amongst top 50 players on the WTA Tour. Perhaps more impressively is the break percentage. You look for Belinda Bencic, who will never be accused of being a grinder. She's someone who, the moment she's got an opportunity to take a ball early on the rise, she's going to capitalize on that opportunity. She's going to be the aggressor, try to end the rally on her terms and even if that means being a little bit aggressive, probably sooner than would be the high percentage play. Benchich trusts her contact point on both the forehand, the backhand wing, her ability to hold serve with frequency that, you know, she'll take an aggressive cut on the return of serve as well. She's not a grinding player. And yet again, you look for Belinda Benchich that she's breaking serve 33.5% of the time, which is still below the top 50 average of 358 but it's above her career average by a percent and a half. And you look for Belinda Bencic that she's serving. You know, she's a top five server on the WTA Tour, and she's not a bottom 10 returner anymore. That speaks to her progress. And again, you look for Belinda Bencic now overall on the season. She's made the semifinals of four different events, quarterfinals of nine different events, nine quarterfinals in what, uh, 18 total events played. You make the quarterfinals in 50% of your events, all of them at the tour level, you're having a damn good season. And you look for Belinda Benchich. She's currently 14th in the live ranking. She's currently 11th in the points race. She trails eighth place Maria Sakari right now by 231 points. That's very doable. 231, very, very doable for Belinda Bencic with what's still left on the calendar. And again, Bencic loses the match in three sets to Barbara Krachikova. She saved 17 of 20 break points throughout the course of the match. 17 of 20. I mean, you know, you look on the flip side, she only created two break point chances for herself, but she managed to stay alive in that match with, again, the ability to find the big plus one and whether it's the slice serve out wide on the deuce, the flat serve into the body, or slicing down the tee on the ad, she hits her spots well. And when she hits her spot, she's just so authoritative with that first strike. I know Belinda Bencic had a very bad year at the slams this season. You look for Bencic, lost first round to Wang Chung, three sets Wimbledon. Third round loss to Leila Fernandez, three sets Roland Garros. A straight set loss to Anissa Mova in Australia. Three set loss to Karolina Pliskova, third round U.S. Open. There's not a single second week in that Grand Slam run. And obviously, that's a little bit disappointing. I apologize again if you hear some barking in the background. Uh, That said, big picture takeaway for Belinda Bencic. Really, ever since her run to the Olympic gold medal last summer and across the board, uh, I think Belinda Bencic has played better tennis. I think you watch her play. She's just fitter than she's ever been. And she hasn't been injured, knock on wood, for 18, 24 months now consecutively. That's just not something we've gotten the chance to say about Belinda Bencic pretty much since she broke through as a you know a world-class junior and top 20 player when she was 16, 17 years old. She's had little nagging injuries here and there that have seemingly disrupted her rhythm whenever she started to gain it. This season, again, she has not had that rhythm disrupted. Nine quarterfinals and 18 total events. Of course, she won a title earlier this season in Charleston, another high-level semifinal. Good wins over Vekic, Bolter, Malagina uh, to get to this point of the tournament. 
again, you look for Belinda Bencic against top 50 opponents this season. She's what, 8 and 12 against top 20 opponents this season, 4 and 5, which sounds a little bit more respectable. But perhaps most impressively against 51 plus, I suppose she's 27 and 5. She's just finally always beating who she's supposed to beat and has ridden that consistency to, again, being in the mix for a year-end finals berth despite the fact that she didn't have a definitive run at the majors this season. To me, that's progress for Belinda Bencic, who has certainly had flashy runs over the years, right? You go back to 2019, her ability to, you know, win the title at a big event in Dubai, semifinals in Madrid, semifinals in Indian Wells, and semifinals of the U.S. Open. You know, we, we've seen her have years where she goes on those big runs, but then, you know, we'll lose a second-round match in Eastbourne or a first-round match in Lugano or whatever it may be. It felt like this year, from a consistency standpoint, I should say it feels like this year from a consistency standpoint, week in, week out, the reliability of that Belinda Bencic serve for her to just put herself in competition in every match that she plays behind that serve means she's just going to stick around and be alive. Is Belinda Bencic the WTA Tour serve bot? I pose that question to all of you Crack Rackets listeners at AL Gruskin at Crack Rackets. Let us know. Is Belinda Bencic the WTA Tour serve bot? Some scholars have argued that the answer to that question is yes. Nevertheless, again, for Belinda Bencic, still alive in that year-end finals race. Is Annette Conteve still alive in that race? Well, you look for Conteve right now, third in the live rankings. Annette Conteve, 14th in the points race in terms of Eighth place, Maria Sakari. I called her ninth place earlier. I didn't remove Simona Halep. You could. Uh, as of right now, Annette Conteve trails uh, Sakari by what? Let's see. Seven plus 45. 545. Uh, excuse me. 445 points. It's not uh, 444 points is not an insignificant amount. If Conteve were to win the title in Ostrava this week, Maria Sakari was not to win a match. She would be 25 points ahead of Maria Sakari. Hmm. Hmm. She's not out of it. Not out of it quite yet, but it's going to take some luck for Annette Conteve to make that push. And you look for Conteve, 29 and 14 overall. Two-thirds rule. I mean, we talk about that here at Crack Rackets all the time. You're winning two-thirds of your matches. You're going to stay in the top half of whatever level of competition you are competing against. And obviously for Conteve being a top 10 player this year, that means playing all the big events at all the big moments. And again, 29 and 14 this season for Conteve. You look for her against top 50 players, 13 and nine against the top 20. She's five and three. I think on paper, the statistics cover up what has been, I don't want to say a disappointing year for Conteve, but she kind of held steady in a year where it felt like there was a massive opening, especially post-Barty retirement. In yes, Iga ultimately filled that vacuum, but in the moment, it felt like would one of Conteve, Sakari, Jabur, you know, one of these players who were so well positioned to establish themselves as a 25, 26-year-old Grand Slam champion this season. Ultimately, Jabur popped the most of any of that group. And, you know, again, Fort Conteve, who reached a final in Doha. She's reached a final in Hamburg, now a final in Tallinn as well. She won the title in St. Petersburg early in the season. Four finals, not a terrible season by any stretch of the imagination. She's made seven total quarterfinals in, what, 15 total events played this season, 50% rule. She's going to be around in the mix. That said, you look for Annette Conteve, good win, a really impressive win, 4-4 four four over Kaya Kanepi, where she faced just two breakpoint chances, one 
over 60% of her first and second serve points. Uh, it was an advantageous draw for Confit. You can't blame her for that. Wins over again. Kanepi, Bonaventure, Martin Sova, Wang Shiyu on her way to the final in Tallinn. She didn't have to be exceptional. She just had to be rock solid. And she was rock solid throughout the course. I thought she was exceptional against Martin Sova, but, you know, again, just was fairly steady against Kanepi. Offered nothing for free. Kept moving the ball in the outer thirds of the court. Was able to absorb Kanepi for strikes. That said, has Conteve gone further in developing an elite weapon and developing something that could just make life a little bit easier for herself? She is not. She holds serve 71.1% of the time. That's just below the average of 71.2%. I believe she ranks 26th or 7th in hold percentage amongst WTA Tour players. She's breaking serve 38% of the time. That's top 25, but again, it's not top 10, top 15. She doesn't really have a single elite skill. And at Conte, one of those jack of all trades, pretty good at everything. Very high floor player, it feels like. Match in, match out. Again, four finals in a single season ain't nothing to sneeze at, but one in three in those finals is Conteve. Tough ending, but I thought Krachikova played particularly well in the final. I don't think Conteve played that poorly, to be honest. That said, her inability to Disrupt the rhythm of Krachikova was certainly a problem uh, in that final. That said, shout out to Conteve. Shout out to Kaya Kanepi, the oldest ranked player in the top 100. You look for Kanepi, who's up to number 32 in the live rankings. It's always good when your ranking is lower than your age. She's age 37. She's ranked 32. Yeah, that's a victory for Kaya Kanepi, who now you look overall on the season. Kanepi here this year, a very, very impressive 29 and 16. Essentially a two-thirds rule, which again, if you're doing that 37 years old, you have my attention by reaching the semifinals for Kanepi. It is her third semifinal of the season, second since the tour shifted to hard courts as she, of course, made the final in D.C. Uh, back in August. That said, that's your action coming off of the WTA event in Lynn. Now, worth noting, again, some of the big rankings jumps with her run. Conteve back up to number three in the world rankings. You look for Benchich. She's holding steady at number 14. Again, for Krachikova back into the top 25. She's at number 23. Kanepi at 32. Those were, I'd say, the biggest movers of the week. That said, that was one of two WTA events, and I want to talk about that action in Parma, but let's jump around a little bit here as we have that opportunity to do so. And, you know, we go from talking about perhaps the most pertinent storyline and without question, that WTA event in Tallinn. I mean, I mentioned all the core, you know, all the semifinals there, Conteve and Krachikova. And, you know, again, it just, the draw was absolutely loaded. Certainly Kanepi was exceptional. And, you know, again, I talk about that Krachikova run. Is that the most impressive run we've seen at any event this season? You know, Obviously, Iga's run's probably somewhere in the mix, particularly with how she's beaten every player that she played. But again, you look uh, for Barbara Krachikova to beat Conteve, to beat Kanepi, to beat, you know, Haddad Maya, to beat Marta Kostyuk, to beat Aida Tamjanovic. Four top 50 wins on her way to the 250 title. That's got to be the most impressive 250 run we've seen this season. I'd put on the shortlist probably for most impressive title runs of the year as well. Belinda Bencic, the other semifinalist whose name, if you couldn't notice, had clearly escaped my brain for the moment. That said, again, we'll get back to the WTA Tour. I want to switch gears now and look at the ATP side. And I don't think I'm going to spend 20 minutes on any of these ATP events, but I do want to spend... 
a good five, at least, on the action in Seoul, South Korea. In particular, how about Yoshihito Nishioka? I think he's having a career year here in 2022 as the recently turned 27-year-old captures his second ATP title of his career. First ATP title since he won that maiden crown back in Shenzhen late September 2018. Noticing a theme here for Yoshihito Nishioka. Of course, he reached the final in Washington, D.C. earlier this summer. Won uh, the Columbus Challenger, then followed it up by winning the uh, reaching the Cleveland final in back-to-back weeks back in February as well. It's been a really good year for Yoshihito Nishioka on hard courts. He's 39-21 and 21 overall on on the season, you narrow that down to hard court specifically 37 and 15 overall on the year. He had a rough clay court stretch where he didn't earn a single main draw victory. Won a couple of qualifying matches in Munich, but lost first round qualifying Madrid, Rome, Lyon, lost first round Roland Garros, first round Wimbledon as well, and yet has made his bread on the hard courts this season and has done it across levels. You look for Yoshihito Nishioka, who has reached seven different quarterfinals this season. Four of them have come at the challenger level. And again, when his ranking had fallen outside the top 100 to start the year, he didn't get arrogant. He didn't try to press his luck through qualifying. He said, you know what? I need wins. I need matches. I'm going to play challenger level matches, going to build back up my confidence. And we've seen what that's done for him down the season's home stretch to reach two ATP level finals is just automatically going to get you back into the top 75. And you look for Yoshihito Nishioka with his title this week in Seoul, up to new career high, number 41 in the live rankings. You look for Nishioka. He's now all the way up as well uh, to number 38 in the points race. Feels about right for the 27-year-old who was just exceptional in a straight set victory over Denis Shapovalov in the final in Seoul. He earns a 6-4, 7-6 win. And, I mean, listen to this draw for Nishioka. Beats Dan Evans in straight sets round one. You know, Taro Daniel round two. But then three-set win over Kasparud, where he was only broken once. Three-set win over Alexander Kovacevic. Straight set four and six win over Denis Shapovalov. A match that... I'm going to be honest. Shapo felt like the better player at times. It felt like the match was played on Shapovalov's terms, and Dennis played extraordinarily well. You look for Shapo. He was broken once, I believe. No, excuse me. He was broken twice throughout the course of the match. Once in the first set, once in the second set. He won 79% of his first serve points, made 63% of his first serve. Shapovalov played excellent tennis, and you know there was a sequence in the first set to me that really captured the ethos of this match. Shapovalov played such disciplined tennis from the baseline is where you have to start. And he was willing to absorb the 10, 15 ball rallies it took to find the right short ball, to find the right opportunity in the baseline exchange to go big and try to hit the approach out or try to really get Yoshihita Nishioka stretched outside the alley. He was extraordinarily disciplined, Thought he was extraordinarily consistent as well. I thought the pace and the depth he was generating, the angle on his backhand wing. I thought Dennis played great. And yet here's the sequence. You know, it's 2-3, 15-40 for Shapovalov. He comes up with two outstanding serve and plus one balls. There's this long rally that goes to a break point for Nishioka, and yet Dennis fights that off with a big serve and ends up holding. 4-3-all. From there, goes to love 40. 3-all, love 40 on the Yoshihito Nishioka serve. First point, 15-ball rally. Nishioka hits a ridiculous 
ridiculous short angle cross court forehand that opens up a down the line winner. That's for 1540. On that 1540 point, Shapovalov comes up with with a sensational, you know, inside out, inside in forehand combination. Has Nishioka on the full sprint, full stretch, hitting a backhand passing shot. Nishioka lasers it backhand cross court. Hits the winner for 3040. Goes on to hold 443. Nishioka just found brilliance is what I'm trying to say in that short angle forehand to open up the down the line winner and in that on the run backhand cross court pass. And I know I'm referencing two specific shots. Go watch the YouTube highlights if you want to see each of those shots. But they epitomize the effort and just the pull this one from out of my ass mentality that, dare I say, Nishioka had throughout the course or was able to produce throughout the course of this match. It was sensational. Just the athleticism, the creativity, how well he finds the angles, the visceral feeling of him rolling his forehand up the line to that Shapovalov backhand and just, you know, the high and heavy balls he was forcing Shapovalov to have to hit on that wing, the high and heavy balls he was forcing Kovacevic in their semifinal, just time after time. Nishioka was throwing up, you know, extraordinarily elevated over the net, high, loopy topspin balls to either force Kovacevic to be 10 feet behind the baseline or have them to hit, force him to hit an uncomfortable high backhand slice. I mean, no one works the angles. You know, the movie Tron, right? Work all of the angles. That's Nishioka. Nishioka is Tron. And I hope that's a reference our younger listeners will reference. They might think Tron Legacy, the new movie, um, or the old Tron. Either way, whichever one floats your boat. We here do not discriminate at Cracked Rackets. The point is he plays all the angles and just he's never out of a shot. You know, second set. Shapov- oh, by the way, how does the match end? 30-40, Shapovalov hits an extraordinarily, uh, extraordinarily effective approach shot. Hits the first volley with great depth. Nishioka, an incredible scramble just to get that ball back on the volley of Shapovalov. Shapovalov has the whole court. All he has to do is make the volley, and he'll win the point at 30-40, and he misses the volley in the net. And that's a 6-4 first set to Yoshihito Nishioka, and that's the set. You know, again, though, Shapovalov comes out, gets up an early break in set number two, keeps firing away and was so disciplined and you know, again, that's why we're doing the full podcast on Shapovalov in December, because even in this loss, I was so compelled with the level of Shapovalov. He literally blinked twice. He blinked in that first, uh, in that final service game of the first set, and then he blinked up a break, but like Nishioka came up with the goods. I, I, again, Nishioka's ability to find those passes in the biggest moment, Nishioka's ability to lace that backhand cross court when he's ready to... He, he was just a survivor, and, you know, again, against Kovacevic, a 6-3, 4-6, victory, he did enough absorbing of the Kovacevic first strike, of the Kovacevic overwhelming forehand. And let me tell you, former Illinois All-American and friend of this program, Alexander Kovacevic, is coming, as we've alluded to before. Bjorn Fertangelo once said there are players who would kill for Kovacevic's cross-court forehand and his ability to take the ball early on the rise to play definitively on his terms and just to go down swinging. He has the weapons. It's about finding consistency with those weapons. I love you, Kova. Hips are a little stiff. Needs to be a better mover. Certainly there were times when you felt like he should have been able to track down some of the Nishioka approach shots and do more with the ball than he was able to do. But 
you look for Kova, who with this run, and not only does he earn his first uh, ATP Tour victory, reaches his first ATP Tour semifinal as well. Kova, 24 years old, up to number 167, uh, jumped 55 spots in the rankings and now assures himself at a minimum you're going to get into qualifying of the Australian Open. Massive week for Kova. And yet again, for Nishioka in that match against Dan Evans, who he just has his number 6-0 against Evans, against Casper Ruud, who he was only broken once against and just did such a good job. You know, against Shapovalov, it was hitting his elevated forehand down the line to the Shapovalov one-hander to Kasparu and Kovacevic. You know, to Kovacevic, it was high and heavy to that Kovacevic one-handed backhand. Against Kasparu, it was playing the short angles, playing the cross courts, ensuring when Rude had to hit the backhand, he was as far in the outer third of that backhand corner as he could be when he was hitting it. I mean, Yoshi was just exceptional, uh, made over 70% of his first serves in every match that he played. And, you know, again, for a guy who doesn't hit the biggest first serve, was very rarely broken throughout the course of his run over the past week, was broken, what, in uh, five total matches, was broken a grand total of six total times. It's a really good week for uh, Yoshihito Nishioka, who you look now overall at the tour level this season. Nishioka, very, very impressive. He's 16 and 13 overall at the tour level. Uh, He went 19 and 20 in 2019. That's the most victories he had in a single season at the ATP level. That said, this win percentage of his, the highest of his career, holding 77.4% of the time. That's the highest number of his career. And, you know, perhaps more important, while that's still 5%, below the average of a top 50 player. You look at the break percentage for Yoshihito Nishioka. He's break and serve 23.2% of the time at the tour level, 27.3% overall this season. The average break percentage of a top 50 pro, 23.2%. And for Nishioka, you know, again, that means he's a top 25 returner at least at the ATP level. And the majority of his matches have been played on hard courts. You imagine he would get that challenger boost or that clay court boost if you were to factor those numbers in. Again, I think this has been the best season of Nishioka's career. I think he hits the serve a little bit bigger. I think physically he's just a little bit stronger as well. He's always been lightning quick, but it just feels like he can sustain things that much longer now. And for Yoshihita Nishioka, it's life-changing sort of season. He's up to a new career high of number 41. You know, he's going to get to play the Tokyo main draw this week. Hopefully, he's got some gas left in the tank. But what does that mean moving forward? You look at the start of the season. Yeah, he's got those challenger points to defend. But he's getting into the Australian Open. He's getting in to the French Open. He's getting into Wimbledon because he's got City Open final points. Now this sole title as well. At the end of his resume, he's positioned himself perfectly. And he'll get into the Masters events. He's going to, you know, imagine Yoshi's game at Indian Wells. How the hell are you going to hit a winner on Yoshihida Nishioka at Indian Wells? Um, Again, probably gets into that main draw of Miami now as well. He's just positioned himself perfectly at 27 years old. And simply put, he was the most impressive player. Krachikova's return to form is more pressing because... Again, for Nishioka, these sole courts were slow. They were high-bouncing. They just felt perfect for his physicality on a quicker court against bigger weapons even more consistently or even in a three out of five set format such as we'd see at the majors. Would he be able to sustain that sort of defensive excellence over the course of an additional hour? It remains to be seen. And he hits his spots well on the serve, but again, 
with all due respect to Shapovalov and Kova and Dan Evans, three of his four opponents, those are not elite returners by any stretch of the imagination. Now, Kasper Ruud is, and, you know, again, that Nishioka had as much success as he did against Ruud. That is particularly impressive and a fun data point to note moving forward. But there's still some questions about Yoshi's upside. That said, again, I mean, the floor, he belongs in the top 70, top 60. He is that sort of athlete, and he's clearly a top 50 player on hard courts, just tracks down too many balls. So extraordinarily impressed by Yoshihito Nishioka. I thought his level exceeded my expectations more than any player throughout the course of this week. But again, Dennis Shapovalov's on the short list. I thought Shapo was really, really good in Seoul. Straight set wins over Munar, Albot, Brooksby. Against Brooksby in particular, he serves for the setup 5-4 in the first set, gets broken for 5-all. Gets that break right back, serves it out. You look for him against Brooksby, only faced three break points in the match. What was so impressive to me about Shapovalov was how measured he was, and he seemed to have found a rhythm at the U.S. Open. You know, a five-set win over Mark andre Husler in round one. Well, Husler just won a title in Sofia. So I think that win has aged well. Played a really good match against Rublev at the U.S. Open. Really good wins over Dimitrov, Tommy Paul in Cincinnati as well. Yes, I know. There was a streak where he went, lost, what, 9 of 10 matches for Denis Shapovalov this season. He's 10-9 and nine in first matches of events throughout the course of this year. That inconsistency has continued to plague him. Excuse me, 13—yeah, no. He is 10-9 and nine over the course of the uh, 2022 in first matches. Had a streak where he did lose five in a row and uh, lost seven out of eight first-round matches. But has now won four in a row. And, uh, excuse me, three in a row. Very winnable match. I love his matchup first run in Tokyo against Stevie Johnson. His serve, the heaviness of his ball into that one-handed backhand. That's a very winnable match for the now 23-year-old. Shapovalov with the win. You know, he reached a final in Stockholm at the end of last year. He defends those points now, sitting at 22 in the live ranking. Shapovalov 21st in the points race. What's this? You know, again, we know the ceiling. We also know the floor. How does he bridge those two things? That's the topic of the December podcast. I'm not going to wax poetically about that topic anymore. I'm going to save it for when I am better prepared from a stats perspective. But again, heck of a run for Yoshi, Shapo, Kova, Jensen Brooksby just quietly plugging along. And yeah, he was the beneficiary of the withdrawal from Nori, who has to withdraw due to COVID. But you look for Brooksby, 27-20 and 20 overall on the year. No, that's not the 49-12 and 12 of last year. But considering he's played, what, all but one event at the ATP level this season, you look for him in first-round matches, 12-8 and eight overall on the year. And he's done it clay courts, grass courts, hard courts. Jensen Brooksby's here to stay. And with his win, he sort of solidifies his top 50 spot as well, up to number 42 in the live rankings, 43 in the points race. That's just, again, considering Jensen Brooksby is what I want to say, 21 years old, turns 22 this month. Um, 20 Going into your age 22 season, you get to set your schedule however you'd like. And there's no big cache of points for Brooksby to have to defend. He's scattered them well across the board this season. So Brooksby's in a good position to, if not sustain, perhaps take that next jump next year. But credit to Nishioka, second title of his career. And I know I didn't mention it, but Rude, Mackey. Nori Elbot, your other quarterfinalists in Seoul. With that said, let's stick on the ATP side. We'll rapid fire down the home stretch here. I said I wasn't going to do 20 minutes. I did 15 on Seoul. Can't imagine I'm going to do more than 10 on Sophia. Now, 
I had a fun debate with Gil Gross, who I've been spending oh so much time with here in California, and I'll drag him onto this show, but I already ask so many different things of him while I'm here as I don't have a car, and, you know, again, I'm like, hey, you want to go play tennis? You want to go get food? To which if he says yes, I say, okay, you're my ride, uh, which he has been more than gracious about. Shout out to Gil Gross as always, but we were discussing Holger Runa versus Jack Draper. And whose upside do you like more over the next decade? Certainly, it feels like the weapons are more evident with the young Draper. Big lefty, big serve, big forehand, his ability to move forward, his size, the overwhelming physicality you feel like three, five years from now he might be able to bring to the court. That said, I don't think there's a discernible weakness in Holger Runa's game anymore. I think Runa's done a very good job of steadying that forehand wing of condensing his backswing. I think he plays much better on the plus one ball on that side, and we saw him do that in victories over Sinego, Ivashka. Yes, Sinner rolls his ankle, but you know Runa did a really good job of not only keeping that first set competitive, but taking that second set and opening up an early break lead in the third against Sinner in the semifinals. And then Look, Runa did his best to keep pace in that final, but ultimately it was the big lefty, Mark andre Husler, 26 years old, captures the first ATP title of his career. Husler was broken once, was broken, excuse me, twice through five victories over the course of the past week in Sofia. Fought off eight of nine break points, but was broken in the first set against Camille Majcek, was broken in the second set against Pablo Carreño Busta. That was it. Faced one break point against Musetti, fought it off. Faced four break points against Holger Runa, fought all of them off. The most pressing of those break points came uh, three four or four three, excuse me. Husler serving first set. Runa, who had been connecting, who re- connected so well on his backhand return in this match, and really did a good job of forcing Husler to have to put away the plus one volley, forcing Husler to have to be exceptional in his aggressive tennis. Hustler was just able to come up with the goods. And again, 4-3, 30-40. Hustler serves in volleys. Runa connects with two brilliant backhands. First at the feet of Hustler. Second one gets Hustler stretched to the ad wing. Runa has a short ball to pass Hustler with while Hustler's at the net. And Runa hits the backhand down the line. Hustler just gets his racket on it. And that ball goes over Runa's head. Runa comes up with a tweener. But Hustler with a short backhand, ang- uh, backhand volley angle hits the winner. That was really the closest of the break points to converting for Holger Runa because on the other ones, Husler just came up with big first serves and on two of them, big first strike put away balls. And that was the key for Husler. In particular, slice out wide. Yes, Runa passed him at times with ridiculous backhand returns. But unless Runa hit that backhand return perfectly, Every single time Hustler wanted it. Slice serve out wide on the ad, serve and volley, first volley to the open court. It must have worked like 14 times throughout the course of this match. And I know you always yell at me, listeners, metaphorically, when I try to compare my game to some of these players' games, but I'll tell you, as a six foot two human who used to be able to serve without shoulder pain, my favorite play was ad side, kick serve, serve and volley. Because if you hit that kick serve well, you just have them stretch so far off the court. You know, for me, what are they, they going to do to beat you? Like, unless they hit a perfect backhand return, they can't beat you down the line because you have even more range covering that ball as a righty on your forehand side. That's the easier volley to hit. You know, if they try to go short angle backhand, fine, but you better hit that perfectly. Otherwise, literally, all you have to do is make the backhand volley to the open court. 
And they're just not tracking that ball down because of how much space they have to cover from being stretched out so far wide outside the alley. And I'm not saying my kick serve stretches them that far wide outside the alley, but Hoosler's kicks, uh, slice serve lefty-wise certainly does. And Hoosler can just hit all the spots. Slice tee on the deuce side, flat wide on the deuce side, slice it into your body. He'll hit, obviously, flat down the tee. He'll mix in the kicker as well on that deuce side, which you just don't see that often as a righty. Hits his first forehand so aggressively. I would put him in the Hatchinov category of mover. 6'4", 6'5", not quite as fluid as the Medvedevs, Zverevs of the world. But for a guy his size, you're not going to complain about his movement, his ability to extend a ball, an extra rally. And I know I alluded to this on Twitter, but, you know, he was down 5-3 to Camille My. He was down 7-6, 6-all, 5-3 in the breaker to Camille Mychek. Mychek hits a brilliant approach shot. Hussler hits this on-the-run forehand chip squash shot cross court that forces Mychek to hang a backhand volley. You know, Hussler passes him for 4-5. Mychek a really good approach for 6-4. And then Mychek has that exact same approach shot, forcing Hussler to hit this on-the-run forehand squash shot that he makes for a second time, dips it low. Mychek pops up a backhand volley again. Hussler passes him back on serve in the tiebreaker. Hussler also ultimately takes the second set, cruises in the third. Uh, again, that's what Hussler did extraordinarily well. And I apologize, you're going to hear the phone in the background again. And this is part of the joy of being – I'm playing an away game on today's podcast. I'm not in my home turf, not on my home course. Nevertheless, immensely grateful to be here, but I do apologize. Should we leave this in or do we – no, no, no. I want you listeners to know this is – these are the battle conditions I podcast under for you. Battle conditions as in dogs barking in the background and phone ringing here as well. That's not a battle at all. That's the luxury of luxuries. But Hoosler moves well. Forehand's a weapon. Yes, it's a little bit big. And in the opponents he faced, Runa, Musetti, Mychek, none of those guys have particularly overwhelming first serves to press his forehand to, you know, force him to be a little bit more uncomfortable on the return. And yes, it's indoor hard courts, which are the perfect serving conditions for Marc-Andre Hussler. That said, you look for the 26-year-old. It's been a really good year for him overall. 42 and 24 this season, winning 64% of his matches. Now, a lot of success for him has come at the challenger level, but two challenger titles, for what it's worth, both of them on clay courts, proving the heaviness of his ball. That big serve, those movement skills translate to a surface you would think would not be the most comfortable for a guy whose game is predicated on hitting the big serve, hitting the big first strike, and moving forward. That said, again, Hoosler having success, doing just that, 42-24 and 24 overall on the year. Made the semifinals in Winston-Salem before the U.S. Open. Obviously, that five-set result with Shapovalov at the U.S. Open makes that much more sense. And, you know, again, looking for Hoosler overall on the season, 10-8. and eight at the ATP level, which, uh, you know, now you look overall in his career, including Davis Cup, he's 16-16, and 16, so 10 of his 16 wins coming this season with that first ATP title mark, Andre Hoosler, up to a new career high, number 64 in the live rankings. Guess what? You're getting into all the slam main draws next year. Guess what? Probably going to have a shot at Masters qualifying, getting into Masters main draw as well. And again, 26 years old, top 100, going to get to play all four Grand Slam major main draws next season, which I don't believe Hoosler's ever done in his career. Uh, it's a clear-cut step forward. And I mean, you look for Hoosler this season holding uh, 85.8% overall. At the ATP level, he's holding 87.6% of the time. Now, he's only played 18 tour-level matches, 
But that 87.6% would rank sixth amongst top 50 players. And again, go watch him play. Tell me that serving stat doesn't feel real given how dominant he was with that first serve, playing the first strike against Runa, Musetti, Maicek, Kreno Busta, etc. Just, it's, it, again, why it wasn't as impressive as Nishioka is because it doesn't take the creativity, the physicality, the sheer improvisational excellence for Hustler that it does uh, for Nishioka point in point out Hustler stays more on script his success makes that much more sense but that doesn't make it any less impressive so credit to the 26 year old and again big lefty a coach's favorite words uh, regardless of who you're talking about shout out to Holger Runa as well I know I could have I don't really know where that Draper Runa tangent fits into things and I kind of got thrown off of that tangent by the phone ringing so I apologize for that mini monologue that went unfinished but look Runa's proven he belongs in the ATP top 50 this season and for someone who turned 19 at the end of April that's remarkably impressive Runa 24 and 23 overall at the ATP level this season but of course made a final in Munich where he won the title now a final on indoor hard courts of Sofia of course quarterfinals at Roland Garros as well you look for Garuna, second highest ranked teenager in the ATP top 100. Runa currently sitting now at number 26 in the live rankings, which is a career high. He's 26th in the points race as well, 19 years old. And again, he racked up 24 ATP victories and 47 ATP level matches this season. That's the good stuff, folks. And for Runa, the serve gets better that he won over 75% of his first serve points in four of his five matches this week speaks to the fact that he gets more comfortable hitting that plus one weapon. His backhand is just a rope, regardless of if he's hitting it offensively, defensively. He's gotten much better when you give him time at lining up and redirecting and generating pace with his plus one forehand. I think he's gained about three to five miles per hour on the serve as well. There's a lot to like about Hogaruna moving forward. And, you know, again, that he is 19 years old and the foundation seems so solid. That speaks to his upside moving forward. But Runa knocked off in the final by Mark Andre Hustler. Got to give a shout out to Lorenzo Musetti, who is just, again, after all the issues last year for him at the ATP level on the faster surfaces as well. You look for Musetti here this season, 24 and 22 at the ATP level. Wins the title, obviously, on the clay in Hamburg. Beats Alcaraz, Rundelo, Davidovich, Fokina. What an incredible run that was. Remind all of us how good he is on the clay courts. You look for him 14-7 and seven overall this season on the dirt. But perhaps more pressingly, 10-12 and 12 on the hard courts at the ATP level this season. And, you know, that's not much different than his 10-13 and 13 record last year. And yet, you know, you look for him last year, some of those wins were buffered by runs in the next-gen finals or really at the 250 levels. And, you know, for him to get good wins over Struff, over Lazarov this week, and, it you know, third round for him at the U.S. Open as well. It just does feel like he's taken a step forward. And, hey, you look for Lorenzo Musetti. He's also at a new career high. The 20-year-old currently 27th in the live rankings, 27th in the points race as well. Has positioned himself very, very well uh, for 2023. And then for Yannick Sinner, obviously extraordinarily disappointing to see another tournament end for him in injury this season. You look for Sinner, who, of course, had to withdraw from the French Open against Rublev due to injury, had to withdraw from Miami and Sarundalo due to injury, withdraws from the Kyrgios match due to injury this season. And now rolls his ankle pretty significantly, forced to withdraw against Holger Runa. 
I mean, look, he's got to put more muscle on that body. Clearly, again, the stability. I, I know, again, it's an ankle roll, and each of these injuries he sustained in a vacuum, whether it was COVID, et cetera, they all do feel like they've happened in a vacuum, and it's not a totality of things, but it's disappointing, especially with just how physical a game he plays. If nagging injuries are going to be a problem, it's it's something you have to factor in moving forward. That said, you know, again, you look for Yannick Sinner, what is he right now in the live rank? He's currently sitting at 12 with his run. He's currently 12th in the points race. He trails uh, ninth place Hubie Hercots by fewer than, or by 325 points. How much tennis, though, is Yannick Sinner going to play for the remainder of this season? Again, Sinner so far this year, uh, 45-14. He's only won the one title this season, which, of course, came in Umag over Carlos Alcaraz. But in 15 total events, he's made nine quarterfinals. Now, he's 2-7 and seven in those nine quarterfinals with his only two victories coming at the 250 level in Umag in Sofia. But... Nine quarterfinals in 15 events is pretty damn good for a guy who turned 21 years old in the middle of August. So, disappointing injury. Runa was playing him really tough, and sometimes you do wonder, Sinner, for all of his weapons, can sometimes just be a little bit one-speed dependent. But credit to Yannick Sinner into another semifinal. Credit, ultimately, to Mark andre Husler, your biggest story in Sofia. That said, home stretch here, I promise, of this show. Although, again, I did say we were going to go over an hour. Let's move next to Tel Aviv. We'll be quick on this one. Djokovic looks like Djokovic. Doesn't drop a set on his way to the title. Felt like he was playing around a little bit with his food in breakers against Pospisil in the first set against Safilin in the second set. But three and four over Cilic. Faced one break point. Fought it off. You look for Djokovic now this season, 28-6 and six overall. Just another year where he casually wins over 80% of his matches, where he casually is holding top 10 percentage, 86.3% of the time. Breaking serve, top 10 percentage, 28% of the time. Now, you know, that 28% is below his career average by 4%. The hold percentage right around his career average. And yet, just it was an eye test thing. Djokovic was one shot better, one step faster than all of his opponents. Just constantly had Marin Cilic hitting from a non-stationary position and on the run repeatedly. And just, again, he he's the guy. I, we need to see Alcaraz versus Djokovic at least once to end this season. And Djokovic going to play Astana now immediately after this title run in Tel Aviv. Djokovic is going to try and play as many matches as he can. I mean, you look for Djokovic, he actually needed this run to the title, and yet it doesn't raise his... He's still sitting at number seven in the live rankings. Djokovic 15th in the points race. He just hasn't had the opportunity to play that many matches this season. I mentioned the record uh, for Djokovic this year, 28-6 and and what? He's made... Uh, he's played... Nine total events, 28 and six overall, three titles and nine events. Not too shabby, once again, for Novak. I thought Pospisil was unreal in the semifinals, uh, in the quarterfinals, was hitting his forehand ridiculously. Djokovic just absorbed it with ease. You know, Safilin pushed him physically. Djokovic was just better from start to finish. And then, again, against Chilich, we've seen that match a million times. Just Chilich could not do enough to constantly make Djokovic uncomfortable. And Djokovic had Chilich on a string. So, Novak looked like Novak. And, you know, again, if he's able to play in Australia, given what I saw with my eyes, yeah, Alcaraz is outstanding. Djokovic still earns the benefit of the doubt until he loses two consecutive hardcourt majors in a row because uh, he has been that good when he's been able to play this season. But, you know, again, credit to Djokovic, who, what is it uh, for his career? I forget what the number of titles is, but 
you know, again, he's closing in on, I think he's like one behind Nadal now or whatever it is in terms of total titles. Still a bit behind Federer, a bit behind Connors, but it just feels like how many events is Djokovic going to play? Because, you know, when he plays them, more often than not, he seems to win them. That said, credit to Marin Cilic, who has just been sneaky solid throughout the course of this year. You look for Cilic, the 34-year-old's 14th in the live rankings, 16th in the points race, you know, just turned 34 years old. Kaya Kanepi, but better, right? Like, I just raved about how good Kaya Kanepi is at 37. Now, again, Chilich a little bit younger than that, but just a ho-humming 30-17 and 17 year for Marin Chilich, where he makes second weeks of Roland Garros, U.S. Open, and the Australian Open, was one of the top five contenders going into Wimbledon, had he not been forced to pull out due to covid Shout out to Chilich. You know, so many in his generation we see, unfortunately, whether it be due to injuries, various circumstances have either fallen off or are no longer at the top uh, uh, or are retired from the game entirely. And Chilich is not. Now, while he's no longer at his peak of a top 10, top five player, we know week in, week out when his weapons are clicking, he can continue to be that good. And you look for Chilich here this season. I mentioned the 30 and 17 overall record against opponents ranked outside the top 20. Chilich is 26 and 9 overall on the season, 18 and 4 against non top 50 opponents. And two of those players, Baez, Kesmenovic, are now inside the top 50. At this stage of his career, Chilich still always beats who he's supposed to beat. And as we've alluded to before, that is half the battle in professional tennis. So credit to uh, Djokovic, to Chilich, excuse me, for sticking around. Credit to Roman Sefillin. I mean, the 20-now-5-year-old Russian was outside the top 100 to enter the week by reaching the semifinals. Roman Sefillin now up to a new career high, number 92 in the world. And Sefillin's a former junior slam champion. He went 42-4 and four when he was, I think, 17 years old at the ITF level, but has had a ton of injuries throughout the course of his career. And with all due respect, he's not 6'4". He's not 6'5". Doesn't have those easy weapons to win things for himself freely. He has to be at his fittest to be able to create the way he's able to create from the baseline. I think of him as a little, a slightly bigger Ricardus Barankas. And Barankas has been a top 100 player for, what, a decade straight? And I think that's the future for Sefillin moving forward if he's healthy. He's so efficient off the ground from both wings, able to generate easy power off of those wings as well. And, you know, you look for Sefillin, 35 and 16 overall on the year, reached semifinals in Marseille, now semifinals here in Tel Aviv. Clearly the indoor hardcourt stable positions with how well he moves, just able to take that ball on the rise, strikes the ball so cleanly. Again, off of both wings. It's a massive result, and he's up to a new career high. And again, that just provides him opportunities moving forward. Now you can go play main draws of all the ATP events to close the season. Those 250s you should get into now. Certainly you'll get into challengers, and you're getting into the Australian Open main draw, which, of course, he reached last year through qualifying. But, you know, now he should get into all those ATP warm-up events in Australia as well by virtue of his top 100 ranking. Massive week for Roman Sefillin. Massive week for the 30-year-old Constant Lestien as well, and I alluded to this last week. Lestien is this year's Benjamin Bonzi talent Greek spore. You look for him 48-23 and 23 overall on the season, has reached five challenger finals, won three challenger titles, all of them coming on hard courts. The Lestien forehand's a little big. He can get a little slap happy. No ifs, ands, or buts about it, but I'm kind of in on the Frenchman's game. Just that ability to take that ball early on the rise. Really love how smooth he is and his ability to absorb pace on that backhand wing. Now, again, you could tell the pressure of Chilich's elite pace 
to his forehand. Uh, that was a problem for him today and uh, in, in Tel Aviv. And, you know, obviously, as you play top 50, top 30 players, you're going to see more of those weapons. But was very disciplined against Max Cressy, picked his spots extraordinarily well, spread the court extraordinarily well, moved forward when the opportunity called for it, has very good hands, uh, does Lestian. Good win over Rusevori. Good wins over Manorino. It was a very good week. And a first pro semifinal for the 30-year-old who, again, to make a breakthrough, to be at your career high, 68 in the rankings coming into the week. You look for his run now, Constant Lestian up to number 61. 30 years old, you're at your career high. You're going to get to play all four slam main draws next year. Constant Lestian has positioned himself to be, again, that Bonzi, that Greek spore, that Ota, who just, you know, that Botik van der Senschkop, who just kind of, you know, through a run of six months of challenger success, now you're in the top 100, now you get to test your goods, and we'll see how those goods hold up. But credit to Sefil and Lestian, who made that. You know, again, it's not the big leap, the top 50 to top 10 that all of us get so excited about, but it's the mini leap, top 150 to top 100, that puts you in position to make that next leap as well. That said, that's all of your ATP action. I didn't forget about the WTA in Parma, though, and that's where I want to conclude today's show. I mean, look, the number all of us are going to be thinking about coming out of the Parma final. You look for Maria Sakkari now. There's no denying it. It's tough. 0-3 in finals here in 2022. You look for her overall now 1-5 in tour-level finals for her career it was a tough week for Sakari to begin with. Lost her first set in all three of her opening matches against Bayendol, against Rus, against Zinevska. Seemed to finally find her rhythm in a 5-2 and two victory over Danka Kavinic in the semifinals, but was just sloppy throughout the course of the final in Parma against Meyer Sharif. And credit to Sharif, who just stayed relentless with her consistency, moving Sakari from corner to corner, capitalizing on Sakari's tentativeness and almost baiting Sakari to try and hit the forehand approach shot because Sakari kept spraying on it so frequently throughout the course of this match. But, I mean, again, you look for Maria Sakari currently sitting at in the top 10, number seven in the live ranking. She is the last player in right now to the WTA Tour. Finals has a 40-point lead on ninth place. Veronica Kudermatova with Ostrava and, again, Linz and certainly uh, Guadalajara left to play as well. But it's a tough loss, no doubt about it, for of Maria Sakari, particularly during a week where it did feel like she had just finally started to get her play together, found ways to win without her plan A, and B, C, and D had to click so well early in the week as we discussed on the mini break, but again, the unforced errors, just there was no rhythm for her on the plus one forehand throughout the course of her final match, and again, credit to Meyer Sharif, who did not play a bad match by any stretch of the imagination. Sharif capitalized on the inconsistency and really just started rolling in her first serve, but made 79% of those first serves, fought off five of the nine break points that she faced, but just seemed to constantly jump on Sakari from the start, and again, could sense the tentativeness from Sakari and almost baited her with those middle third balls. I mean, for Meyer, uh, Meyer Sharif, it's the biggest victory of her career. And certainly, uh, you know, depend. she won the Karlsruhe title at the end of last season. Was that a 125? Was that a WTA level? I believe it was WTA 250. Uh, but you look for her now. Third final of the season, first tour-level title of the year. And for Sharif, who, again, Fresno State, Pepperdine standout, 26 years old. She's number 49 
in the WTA rankings. She's going to get to play all the big events next season. Not going to have to feast on the 125Ks as she so frequently has throughout the course of this year. And for Sharif, you know, wins over Bogdan in three sets, a win over Lauren Davis in a physical straight setter, a good win over Simona Walter to start the week. Sharif is, she just moves the ball around the court extraordinarily well. And, you know, that forehand, especially on a faster surface, can be a liability. But on the clay, when she has a little bit more time to load on that ball, a little bit more time to get into her extreme grip with how well she slides in and out of that backhand corner, again, how well she rolls that first serve in. It's been a career year for Meyer Sharif, no doubt about that. You look for her in terms of tour-level victories here this season. Meyer Sharif now uh, overall in 2022, 8-14. and um, Interesting. She went 19-15 and 15 last season, but has sustained this year and has supplemented it well with the 125K success that she's did. Again, win the title in Carl's Rule, won a title in Marbella earlier this season, uh, quarterfinals in Budapest at the start of the month as well. And, you know, again, that's just good scheduling. Bucharest 125K, Budapest 125K, Parma where she goes to win the title. She goes to play on the clay courts because that's the surface where she seems to be having her most success. And that's just smart scheduling from the 26-year-old who, again, is back inside the top 50 with her run this week. Credit to Dunka Kavinich who solidifies her place in the top 100. Kavinich now up to number 66 with her run. you got to give some credit to Bogdan as well, up to number 46, career high in the live ranking for the 26-year-old, uh, 29-year-old Romanian who, worth noting, her and Paula Bedosa have the exact same eyes. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Some have suggested to me that I'm a little late to that take, but I got to it nevertheless. Um, that said, again, credit to Sharif who asked every question of Sakari in that final. Sakari just too many errors. She wasn't able to answer those questions. So, again, she comes up short, unfortunately, in another WTA Tour-level final. That said, those were your five Tour-level events last week in the professional tennis world. Unfortunately, don't have updated top 10 2025 clubs. 15 for all of you listeners. Uh, don't have updated ELO ratings quite yet for all of you not going to ask Jeff Sackman to move up his schedule to help us here on the Mini Break Podcast. Those always come out on Monday, though, so I'll try to address them on tomorrow's podcast as I set the scene for what promises to be another busy week in the pro tennis world. Not making, uh, not missing out, or we're certainly making up for any missed time over the course of the past few years. With that said, a shout-out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f- event editing job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. Shout-out, as well, to our friends at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that said, for our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, and from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I am your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.